Given the circumstances of his life, it's likely that William Seymour would have been forgotten by history. He was born in Louisiana in 1870, the second-born son of former slaves, and at the age of 21, his father passed away. He became the primary provider for his family, growing crops, and at the age of 25, he moved from the south to the Midwest to pursue better opportunities. He worked for a time as a railroad porter and as a, as a waiter, and then while living in Indianapolis, Seymour converted to Christianity. He had a near-fatal battle with smallpox, the long-term effects of which caused him to lose sight in his left eye, and he kept a beard for the rest of his life to hide the facial scarring he had as the result. Through his survival of this experience, he acknowledged that God was calling him to be a pastor. In 1903, Seymour moved to Houston to pursue a theological education. He sat under the teaching of Charles Parham, a Methodist pastor and healing minister. And Seymour's attendance at Parham's school actually violated Texas Jim Crow laws. He wasn't allowed to sit in class with the white students, but with the permission of Charles Parham, he actually sat right outside the door and would listen into the lectures to hear what was going on. Much of Charles Parham's ministry focused on the gifts of the Holy Spirit on miraculous healing, on speaking in tongues, things described in the book of Acts and things that happened at Pentecost. And when Seymour moved from that school to Los Angeles to pastor a small church, he brought this idea in much of his teaching. The need to experience the movement and the power of the Holy Spirit. He taught this even though he himself had not yet had a personal experience with it. Ultimately, Seymour was rejected by the church that had called him to pastor, with one of their main criticisms being that he proclaimed this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that he himself had not yet experienced. So Seymour took up residence in a house with one of the church members, and together they began to pray and to fast that they might experience the gifts of the Spirit. They might experience miraculous healing. They might experience speaking in tongues. And soon, one of the members that was gathered with them in this little small group, this little house church, began to speak in tongues. Days later, Seymour himself spoke in tongues, and there was this momentum as people kept coming, going, what is happening in this little house? People were crowding the living room. They were crowding on the outside porch, listening in through the windows, so many that the porch of the house actually collapsed, and they realized they needed to move to a larger location. They relocated to a, a church building and began meeting continuously, holding at one time three services a day, seven days a week, with up to 1,500 people in attendance, wanting to experience this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to experience the gifts of healing, to experience speaking in tongues, and all these things that were taking place. This event became known historically as the Azusa Street Revival for the, the street on which the church was located. Christians who pursue or focus on the power of the Holy Spirit or the gifts, gifts coming from the Greek word charisma or charismata, the gifts of the Spirit, they're often called Pentecostals uh, or more broadly called charismatics. And in the year 1900, less than 1% of Christians would have described themselves as Pentecostal or charismatic. But 100 years later, one in four Christians, 25% would describe themselves in this way. Hundreds of denominations and missions organizations have their origin or their inspiration in the Azusa Street revival. And at the heart of this moment, William Seymour, a one-eyed black man born in the unreconstructed South who had a meager education, a man who endured poverty, injustice, serious illness, and racial snubs from the very people who were teaching him about the Spirit. His gravestone humbly reads, Our Pastor, 
but it could rightly claim that he was a pioneer in matters of the spirit that have profoundly shaped the landscape of the Christian world over the last hundred years. Last weekend, we celebrated Easter, and we celebrated the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you read the book of Luke, where we are primarily focused on over the past number of months on its own, you might not realize what happens out of some of that story. Luke 24, 46 to 49, tells us, there we go, he told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. What has his father promised? What power will come from on high? We pick up the story again in the book of Acts, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That story continues again, Acts 2, 2 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seems to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And following this coming of power, Peter begins to preach on the death and the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the savior of the whole world. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And to this message, there's a powerful response and the church grows by 3,000 people in just that one day. Spiritual gifts are at the, the epicenter of the major event that follows the Easter narrative, Pentecost. And we often see moments of the gospel or, or moments of life change that lead into spiritual gifts, right? Out of the resurrection, we have Pentecost. Out of Paul's teaching in Ephesus, the believers begin to prophesy and to speak in tongues. Paul's summary of the gospel in the book of Romans chapter 12 transitions immediately from explaining the gospel into the life and call of a believer as being marked by spiritual gifts. These experiences, both biblical and more contemporary, are marked by a people pursuing God's presence, by people seeking after God and living out his mission, but they are also marked by an experience of spiritual gifts. So over the coming weeks, we want to talk about why spiritual gifts are not only important in the life of the church, but they're actually necessary for its growth. We want to talk about the diversity of gifts and that even though they can sometimes be a source of division among denominations or among churches or among even individual Christians, the gifts actually lead us to more fully embody who Jesus has called the church to be. And we want to talk about how we can have a healthy interdependence with one another with our spiritual gifts. We want to spend time talking about what the different types of spiritual gifts are what they look like and how we might begin to create space for these types of gifts and expressions here in our church or better highlight some of the gifts and expressions that are already taking place that you might not know about. We wanna talk about how love is the guiding principle for the use of spiritual gifts. How our love for one another leads us to use our gifts cooperatively. How our love for one another leads us to use our gifts with humility. How our love for one another leads us to use gifts with respect for one another. 
And underneath all of this, we want to talk about how spiritual gifts are normative for the church. And how even if something, you know, if we haven't seen it before, we haven't experienced something, even if we think spiritual gifts are only something that weird Christians do, the Bible, church history, and even our own experience as a church involves the use of spiritual gifts. And so as we begin today, I want to challenge you, everyone in this room, everyone joining us online, to to keep an open mind. In today's message, we're going to talk about spiritual gifts mainly in generalities. Yes, there's going to be times where we talk about specific gifts as they're reflected in the Bible, but the purpose of today's message is, uh, is a general introduction to spiritual gifts as a whole. Over the coming weeks, as we go through this series together, we're going to unpack individual spiritual gifts and categories of gifts and in more specific terms. So if you're sitting in your seat and you're like, yes, prophecy, like let's go, teaching, healing, you're pumped up, we're going to get there, you just have to be patient. If you're having the exact opposite reaction, you're sitting there going, I just left a weird church to come here and I thought this was a safe place for me, keep an open mind. Okay, we're trying to come at this with a balanced perspective, a biblical perspective, If you're sitting here and you're going, I have no idea what this is, you're not a Christian, you've never read about spiritual gifts, hey, that's great. We're glad you're here and we hope that you can engage with some of this content. We hope that you can learn about some of the things we think should be normal to experience in a faith community. And for everyone, no matter where on that scale of perspectives you might be, wherever you are in relation to spiritual gifts, we're not going to make you do anything you don't want to do. I want you to keep an open mind. I want you to perhaps allow yourself to be challenged in this area, but no pressure to do anything weird, okay? We're not asking you to run up and down the aisles. We're not asking you to get a tattoo your tongue. Like, we're just unpacking and demystifying what the Bible tells us we should experience. And so as we dive into spiritual gifts over the next few weeks, we want to start today learning about what are spiritual gifts, the purpose of spiritual gifts, and the proper use of spiritual gifts. So let's start there. What are spiritual gifts? We've talked a little bit about the book of Acts and some of the places that we see what we would call spiritual gifts in scripture, but what are spiritual gifts? Where do we get our understanding of them? I want to give you three definitions that might help explain a little bit of what we're coming from. Spiritual gifts are most simply ministries or abilities that the Holy Spirit gives to Christians for the edification of the church. A spiritual gift is a special attribute given by the Holy Spirit to every member of the body of Christ according to God's grace for use within the context of the body. Spiritual gifts are endowments or special skills given by God that enable us to make our unique contributions. They are no natural talents, but they are divine abilities that enable us to do ministry. We see spiritual gifts in several places in scripture, largely described in many of Paul's letters, and today we're going to be spending time in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as our main passage, but we'll be pulling ideas uh, throughout the Bible into this message. So if you'd like, you can turn in your Bible or your Bible app to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The big numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and the verses are also going to be on the screen behind me, and uh, online they'll be on the screen for you guys as well. Now it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God can say Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So here we have Paul beginning to unpack spiritual gifts. 
He opens with, now about, or some of your translations might say, now concerning spiritual gifts. This is because Paul is writing to a people that have written him a letter regarding some of the concerns they have in their church environment, right? Much of the latter half of the letter of 1 Corinthians is Paul addressing issues that the church has inquired of him. So concerning spiritual gifts, I want you to be informed. I want you to have intelligible conversations about spiritual gifts, not wild, not unrestrained, intelligible. Paul addresses some issues regarding their previous experience with spiritual gifts, right? See, uh, many of the believers in Corinth had come from other religions and they'd been converted to Christianity. And in their time, they, a big worry for them was what is the source of spiritual power? Right? Non-Christian prophets still could prophesy and, and mystics could still perform miracles and healing and people were experiencing spiritual power or spiritual manifestations outside of the church. But Paul tells us that a mark for spiritual gifts is that a person declares Jesus is their Lord. Right, this, this idea of distinguishing the source of spiritual power doesn't feel super applicable to many of us in our Western Canadian context. Right, we often live functionally as cessationists. You know, on Sunday in church, we think pretty spiritually. Maybe when we're praying, we're thinking pretty spiritually. But oftentimes, we don't really see that there's a spiritual reality at work around us all of the time. Paul continues in, in verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, and there are different kinds of working, but in all of them and everyone, it is the same God at work. There's several items that stand out to me in these verses. Uh, Paul uses three synonyms for what believers receive from God. He describes gifts from the Greek charisma, uh, service from the Greek diakonia, and working from energema. And with the net result of what believers receive is the same, these three words each connotate a little bit of a different aspect, right? Charisma, a gift from God. Diakonia, something that we use in service of God and of others. And energema, the effect of God's power in us. In 1 Corinthians 12.7, Paul summarizes these ideas as spiritual manifestations, kind of a summary word for these different words together. Right, spiritual gifts are some God-given ability we have to render a service that are empowered by God's grace. In Scripture, there's three primary listings of gifts. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, uh, 12 through 14 is a passage on spiritual gifts. Uh, Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. And we believe that these are representative, not necessarily comprehensive on spiritual gifts. Right, these gifts, which may or may not correspond to natural talents, include pretty uncontroversial things like faith, like teaching, like encouragement, but they also include more miraculous things like healing, speaking in tongues, prophecy. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, to one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, and to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. Ephesians 4.11 says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And Romans 12.6-8 says that we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. 
If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. Right, none of the lists that Paul gives here are, are identical, which kind of suggests that none of them, individually or together, is intended to be a comprehensive list of everything that we might experience as spiritual gifts. But it gives us a bit of an idea of spiritual gifts, an idea of what spiritual manifestations are possible. Now, anytime we talk about spiritual gifts, there's going to be two primary areas of confusion that come up. The first one's going to concern what is and what isn't spiritual gifts, and the other concerns if spiritual gifts are still valid for today. Uh, George Barna, who's a leading Christian researcher, ran a few studies on spiritual gifts in the late 90s and into the early 2000s, and here's one author's uh, comments on some of his findings. It says, first and foremost, George Barna found that a remarkable number of born-again Christians who have heard of spiritual gifts do not think they themselves have been given any spiritual gifts at all. And unfortunately, this number is growing. Here are the facts. In 1995, the percentage of born-again adults who did not think they had a spiritual gift was 4%. Not too alarming. But by the year 2000, that number had risen to 21%. If this trend continues, we will soon have a dangerously sick body on our hands. Second, Barna found that there were many Christians who had bizarre ideas of what the spiritual gifts were. Some examples were a sense of humor, going to church, a good personality, the ability to write poetry, the ability to survive, friendliness, or other things that are far outside what the Bible teaches. So what aren't spiritual gifts? Spiritual gifts are not natural abilities, and spiritual gifts aren't acquired abilities. Natural abilities are or talents that are given by God through creation, right? They're innate qualities, they're there from birth, and they can be developed over time. Acting, a good memory, or athletic prowess might be an example of a natural ability. You might be really good at basketball because you're tall, and God may have created you to be tall, but being tall is not a spiritual gift. This doesn't mean that we can't honor, serve, and glorify God through our natural abilities, though. Another category would be acquired skills, right? Acquired skills are developed through training, through education, through experience, often more technical. They're proficiencies and competencies that are developed over time and through human effort. You may take up an interest in woodworking and become a master carpenter. You might take Toastmasters and learn to speak well. You might take music lessons to learn the intricacies of an instrument so that you can play well. But again, these are not necessarily spiritual gifts. You can still honor, glorify, and serve God through these, though. There's often a lot of confusion around these and other areas of gifting and spiritual gifts, right? We can honor, serve, and honor God, and serve and glorify God through our natural abilities, our learned abilities, and our spiritual gifts. But only spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit to empower them for ministry. A non-Christian speaker may speak well, but they do not have the spiritual gift of teaching. Uh, a non-Christian philanthropist may give very generously, but that does not mean that they have the spiritual gift of giving. A non-Christian social worker may be very caring for the people that they work with, but that does not mean that they have the spiritual gift of mercy. Spiritual gifts come only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Another area of confusion for many Christians is if the spiritual gifts are still relevant or still valid today. Right? Certain individuals would argue that spiritual gifts have ceased, and generally the idea is that they have ceased during or following the apostolic age, the age of Paul and the disciples 
In uh, 1 Corinthians 13, eight through 10, it says, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, uh, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Right, the, the general argument here is that the completeness in this passage refers to the completeness of God's word, the Bible. And the idea is that when the Bible was finished in its canonical form, similar to how we have it today, that the gifts were no longer needed. We didn't need gifts to do revealing and teaching and demonstrating because we had the Bible. The Bible taught, the Bible revealed, the Bible demonstrated what had happened. And this belief is generally called cessationism, the idea that the gifts have ceased. And there's a number of versions, there's some differences between them of to what extent they would hold this view, but for our time today, we're just addressing it as a generality. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, writing in the early 5th century, commented that speaking in tongues was a miracle that was no longer evident in his time. And he spoke of miracles still occurring, but noted in some of his writings that they weren't as spectacular or noteworthy as the time of Paul and the disciples. But he still noted that they continued to take place. And uh, cessationism is a more formal doctrine emerged in the Reformed movement, the Reformation, especially with some voices like John Calvin. And even today, there's many people who believe this, especially since we don't often, in our world, see these miraculous or extraordinary gifts. Myself, many other pastors, teachers, and theologians would argue that this view is false. Right? Biblically, there are a number of other times where spiritual gifts are mentioned, but there's no mention of them ceasing. And so I would think that a better argument for this specific passage is that the gifts will cease when Jesus returns, when the kingdom comes into its complete fullness and we see a new heaven and a new earth. There's also much of church history, both ancient and more modern, like we talked about today, where churches and movements and gospel movements are marked by spiritual gifts. Right? And to speak a little bit more personally, there are people that I know and I myself actively experience spiritual gifting day to day. So we believe spiritual gifts exist today. They're not natural abilities, they're not learned abilities, but they are supernatural empowerments for Christians through the Holy Spirit. Now, why do we have spiritual gifts? Right, why would Jesus tell us that a helper is coming to allow us to do greater miracles than he did? Why has God empowered people 2,000 years after he came? Paul gives us this answer in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Spiritual gifts have been given to the church that the whole body may be built up, that it may be strengthened. And I believe that the variety of spiritual gifts challenges not only to grow as a church with really good teaching, or as a church who's really good with mercy and loving people, or as a church that's really good at the miraculous and the power, but it actually challenges us to grow as a church in all of these areas. That we as a church would become more well-rounded and express these things as a whole. Right, those with the gift of mercy, they challenge the whole church to show mercy. Those with hospitality challenge the whole church to be more hospitable. Those with the gift of teaching challenge the whole church to learn more. Those with the gift of intercession challenge the church to pray harder. Those with the gift of encouragement encourage the church those with the gift of giving challenge us to give God and to trust God more with what we have. Those with the gift of faith challenge the whole church to believe in bigger and better things. Those with the gift of prophecy challenge the whole church to, to see what God can do. Those with gifts of healing or miracles challenge the whole church to see how powerful our God is. 
Spiritual gifts push us to demonstrate the love, the word, and the power of God to one another and to the world around us. And that's why Paul tells us to pursue love and to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Because it is through spiritual gifts, through spiritual service, and through spiritual works that the church is built. So, how do we do this? How do we practically use spiritual gifts? Well, we start one by discovering our spiritual gifts. Right? Not everybody in the world has spiritual gifts. Unbelievers do not, and, and, but every person who's a Christian, every person who's committed their life to Jesus has at least one gift and quite possibly more. The Bible says that every Christian has received a gift. In 1 Peter 4.10, which I can't seem to get up on the screen here, but it says each one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others, to serve as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And so all Christians, we all remain responsible for praying, for searching our hearts, for trying out ministries, for seeking loving feedback from people around us to help us discover and ascertain our spiritual gifts. Right? How do we discover our gifts? Well, we start one by learning about them. Right? We can learn about spiritual gifts through this series that we'll be on together for a couple weeks. You can learn about spiritual gifts through small groups. You can learn about spiritual gifts through books. Uh, two of our small groups have just finished a series called Convergence, uh, which will be taking some of the language we use throughout the series out of that study. And over the coming weeks, we're going to have some details about a course we'll be offering that'll help you potentially identify, discover, and live out your spiritual gifts. As we learn about our spiritual gifts, as we begin to think about what gifts we might have, we then test them. We find spaces to serve, we find places we can use our gifts, and we ask mentors, small group leaders, peers, pastors to affirm us in these gifts. Once we begin to know and understand our gifts, we need to use them. If our gift is hospitality, we might serve with first impressions, or we might host a small group. If it's mercy, we might partner with some of the organizations we work with as a church that serve vulnerable people in our community. You might help out with meal trains when family in the church needs support. If it's intercession, you might join the prayer chain or pray for on ministries as they're ongoing. If it's prophecy, you might spend time praying and getting words for the church. If it's teaching or leading, you might take on overseeing a small group or a triad. And as we do these things, we can test our gifts, we can develop them, we can become better at them. But as we do that, we have to keep two things in mind. Number one is humility. Humility because you are not the origin of your spiritual gifts. You are not the oracle, right? You are not the chosen one. These are gifts given by God to build up the whole church. And all the gifts equally build up the church. We need to have humility as we use our gifts. Number two is permission. We ask permission when we use our gifts, right? If you think you've got a, a word of knowledge or a prophecy that God has told you to give to someone, you don't say, hey, God told me this, this is now your life. You say, hey, I think God is saying this to you through me, uh, but take it you know, with a grain of salt, discern it, test it, see if it's work, if it's valid. If you think God is calling you to pray for someone for healing, you don't walk up to them in the foyer, interrupt their conversation, push them out, lay a hand on them and start praying. You say, hey, I think God wants me to pray for you are you okay with that? Can I lay a hand on you and pray for you? Right, we don't force our spiritual gifts on people. And there's a lot of people that have been burned either by the misuse of or by an overemphasis on spiritual gifts. 
I've been through a little bit of that personally. I was previously in an environment where um, I was made to feel a little bit lesser than other people because I didn't have certain spiritual gifts and I didn't express the spiritual gifts I had in a certain way. And it really hurt. It hurt me a lot to go like, oh, I'm, I'm less than some of these other people because of their spiritual gifts. And there was a period of about two, maybe three years where in general, I actually ignored spiritual gifts. I said, I don't want anything to do with it. People misuse them, people abuse it, people made me feel less because of it. I'm just gonna ignore spiritual gifts. Right? It was too painful for me to, to really deal with. But it was working through that, through some mentors and some people speaking into my life that I realized that I wasn't just avoiding the pain that I associated with that experience. I was actually avoiding who God had called and gifted and equipped me to be. John Wimber is quoted as saying that the answer to abuse, to the abuse of spiritual gifts, and the context of the quote is prophecy especially, the answer to the abuse of spiritual gifts is not disuse, but it is right use. Right? People have been caused pain by the misuse and abuse of spiritual gifts, but it doesn't mean that we throw them out. Right? Like with a chiropractor, the answer to a muscular dysfunction is not to stop using it and to just leave it be, but it's to work it, to bring it back into proper use until it works how it should. We fix the dysfunction of spiritual gifts, not with disuse, but with coming back, learning to use them properly, learning to use them with humility, learning to use them with permission, and by focusing on building up the whole body of believers. And so today, as we wrap up, I have three different application points. Depending on where you're at with this conversation, where you're at with some of this experience, one of these is going to be for you, and I want you to write it down in a notebook on your phone. Uh, begin with one of these sometime in the next week or over this series as we work through this together. Okay, number one is broaden your understanding. If spiritual gifts is brand new to you, it's something you've never been across before, it's something you've never studied, or if it's something that you've avoided or maybe pushed away from, then I want to challenge you to broaden your understanding of spiritual gifts. As we journey through this series over the next couple weeks, keep an open mind. Take time this week or in the next couple weeks to read through Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and Ephesians chapter 4. Dig into some of this content with us and explore what these ideas might mean for you. With humility, say, hey God, I am open to learning and experiencing these things. Second application, discover your spiritual gifts. If you're familiar with this conceptually, but you're not really sure what your spiritual gifts are, we want you to discover your spiritual gifts. And over the coming weeks, as we're teaching on some of these things, as we're teaching on the individual spiritual gifts, spend time in prayer, spend time reflecting during the message and say, hey, does, does what Dave or does what Joel, what Joel's talking about from the stage, does that resonate with me? Does that resonate with my experience in church? If it does, that might be one of your spiritual gifts. As I mentioned earlier, we'll be facilitating a spiritual gifts course that's going to have some tools and resources that might help you unpack ideas around spiritual gifts. So if you have time, that could be a great opportunity for you to dig into what spiritual gifts are and to explore and to test them in community. Number three, begin serving. If you know or think you know what your spiritual gifts are, but you're not serving, if you're not using them, we want to help you find a place to do that. If you're still unsure, summer can be a great time to explore different serving opportunities at the church as things rotate and are a little more flexible. And if you aren't sure where or how you can use a spiritual gift here at Ellerslie, chat with your small group leader, chat with myself or one of the pastors. We want to help you find a place where you can use your gifts. As you begin to discover your spiritual gifts, don't feel scared to explore them. 
right? Know that here at Elders that you're in a safe place to use, to discover, and to explore your spiritual gifts. And so over the coming weeks, let us learn together with open minds. Let us become aware of how God has uniquely gifted and equipped each one of us. And let us be all in on spiritual gifts, working to build up and to strengthen the whole church. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have called, gifted, and equipped each one of us differently. We thank you that you have left us with these spiritual gifts, with these manifestations of the Spirit, that we might show your love, your word, and your power to the world around us. And God, as we journey through this series together, I ask that you would be with each person in this room, that as we seek and reflect on what spiritual gifts that we have, that you would be walking with us, that you'd be revealing those to us, and you would help us to discover how you have called us. And God, for those that have hurt, those have pain, those that have spiritual trauma from places where they may have experienced the misuse or the abuse of spiritual gifts, I just ask uh, that you would be with them. You draw near to them. God, that your peace would be upon them as we journey through this together. Amen.